In my more uh, reflective and existential moments, which I have from time to time as an introvert, I sometimes ask myself questions like, uh, what are we doing here? Uh, why are we here uh, on earth? Why are we here in the sanctuary? What is the church about? Uh, what is its purpose? What is our purpose? Some of, been a, some of us have been a part of this church or churches like that for most of our lives. Others of us have had varieties of church experiences from Eastern Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, Episcopalian churches, to Baptist churches, Bible churches, non-denominational churches, Pentecostal churches, and everything in between. Some of us have, quote, been to church in grand cathedrals in Europe and Asia and the Middle East and Latin America, and some of us have been to church in stick huts and in uh, school auditoriums and borrowed uh, office spaces and under trees in Africa. We've had all sorts of different kinds of experiences of church and going to church. Some of us have been to church in prison as guests, some of us as uh, residents. And so in all of that, what is church? The English word church is derived from a Greek word, uh, ekklesia, and the word ekklesia is a compound word that literally means called out. It is out ekklesia, or kaleo, called, called out. The earliest church was this collective of people who were called by God out of their former way of lives and into this assembly of which Jesus was the head. Today though, more, today, though, we more commonly use the word church, ecclesia, church, in two different ways. First, to refer to a building. We call this a church. And second, to refer to a worship service. We speak regularly of, I'm going to church. Let's go to church. But originally for Christians, the word church had neither one of these meanings. There were no church buildings. Christians met in the temple and in synagogues and in their homes, in the home, the larger homes of their people. And so they didn't go to church. They understood themselves to be the church. And so one of our things, or I should confess, one of my things around here is encouraging people to be intentional about the words that we use, the words that we speak, the language that we use, because the way that we speak informs eventually or confirms our thinking and the thinking of others around us. And so I encourage us to say, we're not going to church, we are the church. We don't go to church, we are the church. We gather for worship, we gather for other purposes. And so what is church? What is church really all about? Every local called out assembly of people is different and unique. And that's probably been your experience if you think about it and if you look at the landscape of the world in history. Some churches are all about tradition or traditions. Some are about keeping things exactly the way they think they've always been. Some are about great music. Some are about not great music. Some are about a building or a campus or stained glass windows or a sanctuary. Some give great emphasis to caring for the poor or the oppressed or the stigmatized or the ostracized. I think of Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco who really has that as their primary focus of what it means to be church. Some churches latch onto a particular social issue. Some churches revolve around a leader or a leader's personality. Some churches are probably primarily about a program, whatever that program may be, maybe a youth ministry. 
This morning, I want to look at the scriptures uh, as we do to talk about some of the things that have been important or what we've hoped and tried to hold on to as important at First Presbyterian Church. It's good to do this periodically, but it feels uh, especially good to do this now as we've been talking about our life together the last few weeks in grace and gratitude and generosity and stewardship and what it means to be a part of and to support the work of this church. And as we enter the chaos or the busyness or the distractedness of the Christmas season right ahead of us, the holidays. And we're also at this kind of transition point or in the middle of a long transition for us as a congregation. So it seems particularly important to think again together about what it means to be church, about who we are as church, about who we are called to be as church. And so uh, that'll be what we're talking about this morning. Uh, Before we do that, because we'll be grounded in the scriptures, let's pray. Pray with me. Help us, God, with our bigger questions or the questions that we don't ask. The questions about who we are and why we are and what you want and how you've called us to be and what you intend and about this kingdom about which Sean prayed. Help us to be attentive to you, to your word, to your will, and to your way. Give us eyes that are able to see, ears that are good to hear, and hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. Last Sunday morning, I read and preached from six little verses in the second chapter of the book of Acts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, about Jesus, and then Acts about the beginning of the church and his name. Uh, We saw in those six verses at the end of chapter two of Acts uh, how they made up for the early church and still for us today, a very compact description or definition of what it meant to be church, what church life was like in the first century. Uh, So um, Jesus had been crucified resurrected, ascended to heaven, and then at the beginning of Acts, as Jesus said would happen, he sends his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. They are empowered. Uh, People come to faith. These uh, amazing and miraculous things happen. People are baptized. They experience power and transformation, power to be his witnesses, to live his life, to carry on his work, to continue to do what he began to live in his kingdom. So I want to pick up their story in Acts chapter 2 like last week, but I'm going to rewind a few verses back to verse 22. Uh, The formerly cowardly, but now incredibly courageous Peter, right? Denied Jesus three times, don't even know him. Fickle, whimsical, the formerly cowardly Peter and the now incredibly courageous Peter. Standing in the public square, kind of out there all on his own. Lays it all on the line, and this is what he says. Listen closely. This is the word of God, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, remember whom they had just crucified. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. It wasn't an accident. And you, with the help of wicked men, the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
And then Peter quotes their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, citing passages that he was sure proved that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. And then Peter continues in verse 36 with his public square preaching. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, God, the one God, Yahweh, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Christ, anointed one. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond to this? What should be our response? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise, this promise is for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then the verses that we read last week, verse 42, they, in other words, these 3,000 people who have just came to, come to faith and be filled with God's, been filled with God's spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, at least for a while. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were being rescued, those who were coming to faith, those whose lives were being turned upside down in good ways. And from this passage of Scripture and others, we here at First Presbyterian Church a number of years ago uh, came up with 10 values out of that and out of some other passages of Scripture that define us and that help guide us. They describe both who we are and who God is calling us to be and to become. And the first of those values is Jesus Christ as Lord, which is or who is what the New Testament is all about, in which we explicitly see stated here in verse 36 where Peter declares, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this simple son of a carpenter, Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, a 33-year-old Palestinian man, Lord and Messiah. Jesus was and is God's anointed one, the Christ who would deliver God's people from slavery and from sin, who would rescue and who would reign, who would be God's representative and God in flesh, fully human, fully divine, rabbi, master, Lord. The New Testament is not about a bunch of rules. It is about the supremacy, of, as we talked about in the book of Colossians, about the lordship, the centrality of Jesus. Jesus was and is God's anointed one. Biblical scholars believe that the very first creed of the church was just three words. It's three words in English. It's not the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't paragraphs. It wasn't a book. The very first creed was simply, Jesus is Lord. And that over and against Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
And Jesus being Lord means that he is the sinner and he is on the throne and that everything revolves around him. And as we read in Colossians, all things were created for him and through him and by him. He is the beginning and the end, the firstborn above creation, the one we obey and the one we worship, and the one before whom, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, every knee would eventually bow and every tongue confess that he is what? And while the lordship of Jesus would seem to be obvious and a natural focal point and commitment of any church, such has not and is not always the case. There have been and there still are churches and movements that on the surface appear Christ-centered but which actually have either pushed Jesus to the periphery or they are simply embarrassed about Jesus or they deny his lordship altogether. But we, as the apostle wrote to the Colossians, have died with Christ. We have died with Christ that we might live with Christ. That is our baptism. Our whole reason for being is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not an attachment or an appendage or a peripheral thing or a hobby or a Sunday morning deal. He is Lord. And Jesus, when asked what the most important thing, law, rule, command in all of the Old Testament, Lord Jesus, what is most important of all of the scriptures and all of the things we are told to do? Jesus declared, reciting from the Jewish verses in Deuteronomy, that every good and faithful Jew Uh, recited every morning and every evening what they called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength, with all of your faculties. This is most important. And we see in Acts 2 a people who loved God and Jesus Christ. And by loving God wholeheartedly, which is the second of our values, we mean, as the scriptures mean, not romance, not gooey feelings, but devotion, but uh, commitment, consumption, affection for God, awe of God, worship of God, falling down before God, serving God, having God at the center. Jesus Christ as Lord, loving God wholeheartedly. And so the primary gathering of church each week, while not only about loving God, is all about expressing and living out for God our love, which we do through worship and we do through serving in his name, as Jesus said, and by loving our neighbors. Peter, through standing up and preaching in the public square, was putting his life on the line. And in doing so, was an act of devotion or an act of love, expressing his love wholeheartedly without reservation or regret and with great risk to his own life. And the disciples' love for God and really their faith and life together were grounded in the scriptures, which is why Peter quotes from the prophet Joel and from the Psalms. Moreover, Acts, the author of Acts tells us in verse 42, the new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching which was the spoken word of God and would become the written word of God. What we now have is the New Testament. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The people of the first ecclesia did not define truth randomly. They did not pick and choose material sources that fit their own worldviews. Rather, they read the scriptures of the Old Testament. They paid attention to the teachings of the apostles and to those who knew Jesus personally and had followed him, walked in his steps, listened to him closely for three years. 
the things that would become our New Testament. The people of the first ecclesia were people of the Word and people of the apostles' words, which we hold today as inspired. And so we take the Scriptures seriously. Sometimes I'm asked, uh, do we read the Scriptures literally or do we read the Scriptures figuratively or metaphorically? And the answer is that we always read the Scriptures contextually. Sometimes that means literally. Sometimes that means metaphorically. But we always take the Scriptures seriously. We seek to understand them as they were first communicated in context and how they were intended to be heard by their first hearers. We read the Scriptures thoughtfully and hopefully humbly. And we read the Scriptures intelligently. And we read the Scriptures with love. And in all things, holding God's Word to be foundational, which is why we encourage the study of the Scriptures and even the memorization of Scriptures. I know that not a lot of us are doing this, but when you get your memory verse card on the way out of worship this morning, I encourage you throughout the week and not just on Sunday morning, by this means or many others, to absorb and to ingest God's Word. It is truth. And then the church went about equipping all of its members for ministry, which is the third of our values. That day in Jerusalem, God's Holy Spirit was poured out on all who believe. We read in that passage in late Acts 2 that they all received the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us later on that everyone who has received the Holy Spirit has received at least one gift of the Holy Spirit from the Holy Spirit, a spiritual gift, some have called it, for the building up of the body, for the expressing of God's kingdom. Every one of us has at least one gift. That day in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit made sure of that. The ministry of the church was not limited to Peter and James and John, but it immediately included women and tax collectors and all kinds of people who heretofore had not been rabbinic material. And so the ministry of the church today does not belong just to pastors and elders and deacons and staff, but to every person who is a part of the body and who has received his spirit, to every person in the ecclesia. It's unfortunate that the space in which we meet, when most of us are together on Sunday mornings, is set up like a theater. Just the architecture of this, and not this particular place, but most churches is unfortunate in many ways because it gives us the idea that it, like a theater, we're here to be entertained. But following Jesus, being a Christian, being a part of the ecclesia, being a part of the family of God is not a spectator sport, but rather it's a community into which people are invited and in which everyone is involved, whether as an usher or a musician or someone who makes sandwiches for homeless people or who teaches kids, or visits the sick and dying, or leads a life group, or is a part of the, the church's prayer ministry, or plans for a vacation Bible camp, or makes snacks, or paints walls. There are lots of churches that one can be a part of in which the leaders will be fine if you sit in the pews and put money in the plate, period. But our hope here is that every person who is a part of this church will participate in the ecclesia, according to one's gifts and calling, for the glory of God, but also for the joy and the blessing of oneself and others. Experiencing in that, and really only in that, 
all that God intends for each of us and experiencing the joy of serving in Jesus' way, equipping all for ministry. And like the disciples and believers we read about in Acts 2, our hope is not only that people experience God's good news in Jesus, but that each member of the ecclesia also tells that good news to others. Like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Like one hopeless person telling another hopeless person where to find hope. Our hope and our value is that every single one of us is a good newser, is a gospel teller is inspired, empowered, and equipped to speak God's good news, not in threatening ways, not in offensive ways, but in humble and joyful and winsome ways in each of our little circles, each of our little workplaces, each of our neighborhoods. And as we discussed last Sunday, we value also generosity as we see in in the early church. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. To such we aspire. Jesus tells stories not about a stingy God, but a generous God. And those who are filled with this God's spirit will be generous, not just with their money and their tangible resources, but with their time and with their talents. And with their words and with their prayers and what they, what we want for others. There's enough of an idea of scarcity in our world and in our nation right now. In one of the most blessed nations in the history of the world, there is an attitude of scarcity that pervades so many that there's not enough for me, that I need more, that we, each of us, needs to get what we can. There is enough for everyone. By God's grace, may we become increasingly like the God we love who gave everything in Jesus. And then there is compassion and a just society. Inspired by God's love and filled with God's love and moved by God's love, we are committed to caring for one another and to caring for others and especially in the way of Jesus, the poor and outcasts and the broken and the brokenhearted, and pariahs. May we be filled with God's mercy and seek to participate in the coming of God's kingdom today in our world, right here in our midst, on earth as it is in heaven. May this church never be a merely religious institution or an ivory tower, but instead be committing to the righting of wrongs in our world and in our community. As Presbyterians have long said, that we be for the promotion of social righteousness and the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. And devoted to prayer, as we see in verse 42. Some of the wonders and signs referenced in verse 43 may have been people being healed, as was common not only in Jesus' ministry, but also in the early church, and which we believe God still does today. So every Sunday you can come forward for a prayer for healing. Any day of the week you can call an elder or a deacon or stop by the church office or call. There are constantly people in this church who are praying and trusting God in that prayer and often with the hope and the trust that God will heal as he wills. And as Peter declares in verse 39, the promise of God in Jesus, the promises of God are not just for us but also for our children 
in God's grace. And so our ministry portfolio, as we look at our budget and our allocations as a church, our commitments will always be overweighted toward children. Toward our own children and toward the children of our community and toward the children of the world. And eventually also then to youth and to their families, helping families to raise their kids in Christ and in the love of God. And then there's this little thing called community, by which we don't mean neighborhood, but rather a way of living and being in which Christ, in Christ, we belong to one another. Again, we read verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And from that word in Greek koinonia, we get the word community, which refers not so much to proximity, but to trust and to accountability and to one anotherness to love. Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples, my followers, my people. People will know that you are my disciples, not by where you are on Sunday morning, not by the fish on the back of your car, but by the way that you love one another. With your words, with your actions, with your time, with our resources. And while I know that we live at a distance from mo most people, we live our lives very privately. We go into our homes, shut the doors, shut the garage doors, close the blinds, and what's mine is mine. And yet, we in the church aspire to be a people who know each other and are known. Not that become enmeshed, but so that the spirit in me is encouraged by the spirit in you. Our culture today has been described by some sociologists as a lonely crowd, reliant on social media. Depression is common. Truly deep friendships are rare. Relationships are thin. But the people of the ecclesia are called out to something different and empowered for such. And these are things from the scriptures that we value that we aspire to value. And at the same time, we are far from a perfect church, aren't we? We don't have all the answers. We are not perfect people. But we do believe that God has called us to himself and that God has called us together, warts and all, and we have many. That we might become the people that he would have us become and that through us, God will be reconciling the world to himself, bringing peace, reuniting people to one another, demonstrating love, ushering in his kingdom, bringing to earth, Jesus said, the things of heaven. Some of us grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. I don't know where I would be without the church. And we read in the news and we see in the news there are abuses of money and abuses of people. There are abuses of children. God have mercy on us all. But where would we be? Where would I be? Where would our world be without the church? A church that is faithful, a church that is operating according to Scripture, a church that is filled with God's Spirit, a church that is devoted to the things of God.
a church like we read about in Acts 2. There are lots of great organizations and great people in our community, in our county, in our, on the peninsula, in our world. But I really, really believe that the church is God's primary instrument for bringing about healing, for bringing about hope in our world. To such we imperfect people together are called. May we live into this reality by God's grace and may he be glorified. Let's pray. We have all different kinds of experiences about church, God. Some of them good, some of them maybe not as good. Make clear to us who you would have us be as a family. A hospital for sinners. A place where people are restored. A community in which people are built up. A collective that serves its world in your name. An assembly of people who gathers to praise you and who goes out to declare your goodness and to live your mercy. Help us as individuals and as a body to exemplify, to embody, to demonstrate your kingdom Help us, we pray, in Christ the Lord. Amen.